0: If you went to grade school in America, you've probably heard of Thomas Edison. But maybe you haven't heard of Lewis Latimer. Inventor and engineer Lewis Howard Latimer was born to parents who had fled slavery. And when his father disappeared, perhaps from fear that he'd be re-enslaved, Latimer had to start working to help provide for his family. Latimer learned the art of mechanical drawing while working at a patent firm in his teens. Over his lifetime, Latimer received a total of seven patents. Maybe his most important invention was the carbon filament that Latimer developed and holds the patent for. This invention was the very thing that made Edison's light bulb commercially viable. By improving the quality of light it shed and extending its life from minutes to hours, This made light bulbs less expensive and more efficient and it enabled electric lighting to be installed within homes and throughout streets around 1885 latimer finally joined forces with edison and began improving upon his boss's invention latimer became part of edison's inner circle and edison made him lead patent investigator and encouraged him to write a book on electric lighting
1: and i think his story is really interesting You know, there are two stories there, actually. Marconi and Alexander Graham Bell submitted their patent applications hours apart. And it was Louis Latimer who helped Alexander Graham Bell draw up the proper uh, diagram for the patent for the telephone.
0: This is Dr. Lisa Cook. She's professor of economics and international relations at Michigan State University. She does research on macroeconomics and economic growth.
1: So he was already uh, a party to some of the, the uh, most uh, groundbreaking technologies of the uh, late 19th century. So uh, that he would work on this carbon filament uh, for the light bulb and then become part of Edison's patent team was just extraordinary. There was no other uh, Black person on that team.
0: However, it was at the Edison Company that Latimer felt his color began to be a drawback. Writing about himself in the third person, he recalled, every new workman who came into the office saw for the first time a colored man making drawings. And as often as they came to work in the office, they tried to pretend that he could not do their work. You see, as Latimer was working and innovating at the Edison Company, the backdrop around him was a frightening one, to say the least. Jim Crow laws were still in place, and lynchings of African-Americans were not uncommon. A separate but not at all equal America was taking shape.
1: Uh, Inventors have to be safe and, and have their personal security defended. Uh, to be able to engage in the free flow of ideas.
0: For Dr. Cook, Latimer's story shines a light on what might have been if Black citizens had been allowed to live and flourish as white citizens of the time were. When Dr. Cook hears Latimer's story, she hears a big loss. How big? Well, she's been working on calculating that. From the Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation, this is Stroke of Genius. One of the theories that's the bedrock of our economy, and certainly of the intellectual property system, is innovation. It's the idea that all you have to do is invest in science education, promote market competition, and most importantly, pass strong patent laws. And innovation will just come. People love this idea. And a generation of economic students have been taught this theory, including Dr. Lisa Cook.
1: So this one had in it increasing returns to scale that if you could produce ideas, you could have a country could have infinite growth. And I thought that was much more hopeful than what I was seeing.
0: As a student of economics, Dr. Cook was completing her dissertation in Russia.
1: I was interviewing bankers and entrepreneurs for my dissertation, and they kept asking me, you know, why won't innovation come to, to Russia uh, you know, we've got the intellectual property rights on the books. We have these intellectual property laws that have been passed. You know, I, I didn't have an answer for them. If they can't get invention and innovation going, uh, they may not be able to get their economies growing on a sustainable basis. So that was an urgent question.
0: This question, it nagged at Dr. Cook.
1: What what is it about our uh, our theory that is not matching uh, reality?
0: She didn't have anything other than a hunch at the time, but it was enough for her to form a hypothesis.
1: So I thought about similar periods in economic history where you might have uh, the intellectual property rights in place, uh, intellectual property rights on the books, but. Inventors were in a situation that might be similar to what we saw in, in Russia. And uh, I recalled the period, uh, not recalled myself, but certainly from U.S. history, I knew that uh, African-Americans were subject to riots, lynchings, and segregation laws that supported riots and lunchings. In the late 19th and 30, early 20th century, so then then we had this this historical experiment, you know, based on uh, tremendous uh, terror and and suffering, but it would inform the kind of violence that I saw in in Russia. In both cases, people were experiencing lack of personal security.
0: Dr. Cook's hypothesis was that violence had an effect on economic activity and on economic growth.
1: At the time, there was a paper uh, that dominated the, the field that suggested that it was the other way around, that economic growth is what led to violence. And, you know, I wasn't convinced that that was uh, correct and I thought it was testable.
0: So she simply set to work on it.
1: So here we have two groups of of inventors, uh, African-Americans and uh, white inventors, and one of them was subject to this violence and the other uh, group was not. So I wanted to see what effects that violence had on, on patenting and on invention in the U.S.
0: Dr. Cook wanted to look at data from 1870 to 1940 and compare the number of patents filed by black and white inventors. She chose 1870 because by that time, the Emancipation Proclamation would have taken full effect. And what's interesting about that is that as soon as an African-American was free, he or she could hold a patent. The Patent Act was passed all the way back in 1790. It was one of the first pieces of legislation passed by the first U.S. Congress. And it opened the door for any person, male or female, to protect his or her invention with a patent. But if you weren't seen as a person, if you were someone else's property, most likely, so were your inventions. So it wasn't until after slavery ended that the majority of African Americans in the U.S. were free to invent.
1: I wanted to do it after uh, slavery had ended, uh, certainly. And I wanted it to end before modern Riots, modern race riots, because I, I didn't know as much about them.
0: Dr. Cook started compiling tons of data. This part can be really tedious, especially if the data you need isn't readily available. You see, Dr. Cook had patent filings that she could comb through. That was the easy part. The hard part? Race isn't included in patent applications.
1: There there was no systematic evidence on Black names historically. So I had to create that. So I created the first ever uh, list of uh, historically Black names.
0: And then she found the directories of inventors were all inventors that were already famous. And
1: uh, that wasn't good for uh, for patentees because most patentees are not famous. So I had to find some other way to get at them, but. I looked through all kinds of articles and um, did all kinds of searches. And this is is before Google patents. This is before Google. And, you know, some of this was before Google. This is early 2000s.
0: So Dr. Cook ends up with 726 patents filed by African-Americans during her chosen time period. But that was just the first part. Then she had to look at what was going on in history when either these black or white inventors filed their patents.
1: What I found in the data was that uh, African American inventors and white inventors were were largely, you know, just going about their business uh, inventing. So invention was moving in the same direction for both of them uh, in the period 1870 to 1899, uh, and uh, both, you know, uh, going in an upward uh, direction.
0: The Civil War was over. The 14th Amendment had recently been passed, promising equal protection under law for all men born in the United States. And during this time, given this new freedom and these new rights, African-American inventors were thriving. This is when Louis Latimer was doing all of his inventing.
1: And then I noticed that in 1900, they start diverging. And I'm thinking, that's odd. So that's when I started looking for, for answers. And it seems to me, Plessy versus Ferguson, the Supreme Court ruling establishing uh, separate but equal as the law of the land.
0: Plessy versus Ferguson was the Supreme Court ruling that gave official legal sanction to a so-called separate but equal America. This allowed for the creation of segregation law throughout the United States. It takes a little while for Black Americans to be barred from the places where they would go to check patent registries, or for them to be cut off from talking to other inventors, or for them to lose their jobs. Many Black inventors who had been filing patents prior to the year 1900 never filed for a patent again.
1: So that matched up perfectly with uh, the year 1900 being this year of collapse. And what we see is what one would expect is a fall in in invention and patenting.
0: Since then, America has changed. Segregation law is no longer in place. And when
1: the violence uh, ceases, you see a return to uh, patenting and innovation, but we don't see a full return. Uh, 1899 is still the peak year for patenting per capita among African Americans.
0: 1899 is still the peak year for patents filed per capita among African-Americans. That's shocking, and certainly a testament to the cumulative effects that racism has. But what Dr. Cook wants people to know is how big of a loss that is.
1: So what I found was 726 patents. And what I should have found is roughly 1,100 patents, which would have been Roughly the size of a mid-sized European country that was uh, obtaining patents in the U.S. patent data set during that period. So that's, uh, so that's huge.
0: Imagine a country with more inventors like Louis Latimer.
1: This would have been uh, an important contribution to the inventions that were feeding the uh, Industrial Revolution. And uh, for macroeconomists, this is a really bad side because invention is uh, critical to uh, innovation. Innovation is critical to economic growth. And uh, what we we find is that this became much more volatile. The series would have been much more volatile had uh, white inventors been subjected to the same violence. So this is uh, an important cautionary tale for countries, not uh, just for African-American inventors during that period, but for countries like Russia, Ukraine, China, places where the rule of law might be threatened.
0: There's something not in her data sets that contributed to Dr. Cook's hypothesis.
1: You know, I I grew up in the desegregating South, and that's, you know, this is... This wasn't that long ago. Uh, outside of major cities, uh, places were still being uh, desegregated. So, you know, when I was, uh, when my sisters and I were integrating our nursery school and kindergarten, um, yeah, I was, I was, I was uh, beaten up and, and called the N word uh, in that process. So, yes, i I'd, I'd uh, certainly uh, been. Uh, been uh, a recipient of some of that, that violence.
0: There was another large dip in Dr. Cook's data sets of patents filed by Black inventors. The year was
1: 1921. 1921, you know, there's this depressing effect on, on patents in that year. And I thought, this is, this is strange, too. Like, you know, I was looking for a change in the, uh, the cost of patents. Uh, you know, something that had to do with the patent office. And it turns out that that was the year of
0: Tulsa. 1921 was the year of the worst incidents of racial violence in American history, the Tulsa Massacre. This sent a message heard by Black Americans everywhere. The U.S. government would not be protecting them from violence, nor would it be protecting their livelihoods. And certainly, it would not be protecting their inventions. After that, patent filings by Black Americans everywhere dropped off a cliff.
1: People have to be safe. Uh, uh, inventors have to be safe and, and have their personal security defended uh, to be able to engage in the free flow of ideas.
0: Dr. Cook knew this somewhere deep in her psyche. So that, that was
1: my intuition then. But, you know, I had no, no proof of that. I had no evidence of that. Uh, so my initial reaction, uh, you know, muted and non-speculative and extremely conscious, uh, just had uh, empirical support.
0: Even with all of this empirical support, when Dr. Cook went to get her research published, she faced a ton of adversity people challenged her view of history.
1: I certainly was combining uh, data in ways that the data had not been combined before. So there was a lot to, to process in what I was uh, presenting. Data on lynchings, major riots and segregation laws, uh, and, and uh, you know, introducing these things uh, that, that my colleagues hadn't either, again, paid much attention to or seen before. I had to go digging deep into history books to sort of show my colleagues, you know, economic history or, or U.S. history that I thought most people knew. So I was, I was somewhat struck that uh, these h- historical facts were not ones that were shared with my uh, colleagues, they were unaware of these uh, facts. But I also got uh, questions like what's a former slave and the process of uh, of getting the paper reviewed.
0: So she basically had to write an African-American history paper alongside her dataset findings. And this is how Dr. Cook became familiar with Lewis Latimer's story.
1: as I was writing this paper, uh, I... You know, learned a lot more about Lewis Latimer than I uh, knew about him. And, and that's true for many of the great inventors of that period, uh, African-American inventors. And even in that period, his name was being erased. In 2002, I could find him on a lot of different records that were uh, publicly available on the web uh, related to Thomas Edison. And by 2005, uh, there were many fewer, many fewer references to him. So it was even in that period that his name was being erased out of, the, uh, out of being an important part of uh, not only the contributions to the light bulb, but uh, an important part of uh, his patent team. And then he became an important part of his legal team defending Edison's inventions against, uh, against infringement. It was very strange to watch as we got access to more information in the early 2000s with better search engines, with more search engines and better search engines. The more I found, the less his name was apparent. History goes through these periods of, you know, recovering stories and then burying them. (laughs) Recovering and then burying or ignoring.
0: One thing that hasn't been erased is a photograph of Edison's team. The photo was taken in a crowded room full of white men. And in the middle of them, sitting at the table, the only Black man is Lewis Latimer. For many Black students and professionals in STEM, that's still the way it is today.
2: I was the first African-American in the program. So five years later, I would be the first African-American to earn my PhD in that program. So I knew I was going to be a trailblazer. I was going to you know, create this avenue for other people to know that they can take this path as well and be more invited and welcomed.
0: This is Dr. Latasia Jones. She was the first African-American to graduate with a Ph.D. from the Department of Biomedical Sciences at Florida State University. Dr. Jones has a soft spot for kids interested in STEM. And she wants Black students to feel encouraged to pursue careers in STEM. It's a proven fact that industries with high levels of STEM workers are also patenting more inventions. So, with more Black students going on to pursue careers in STEM, there's a much greater chance of having more Black patent holders. Dr. Jones knows this, and she's really interested in what needs to be fixed at the very beginning of that patent pipeline. It all starts with Black grade school students in STEM feeling inspired and welcome.
2: Um, So... Essentially to me, to hear an adult say that they did not know about the opportunities in STEM until they were an adult, that is telling me that somebody left this kid behind. And then I decided I wanted to do this for the rest of my life or create these initiatives that allowed other students to do these things for the rest of their lives as well. And I knew the best option for me was to uh, earn a PhD so that I can not only create these avenues, but I can essentially call the shots
0: Dr. Jones fell in love with Florida State University when she went for her first visit. And when she arrived for orientation, she felt very welcomed there. But she was far away from her family. And the news in Florida was full of violence occurring against Black people.
2: Literally, Trayvon Martin was killed like three or four months before I started my program. And Jordan Davis was killed, I think, four to five months after I started the program. So being alone and being the only African-American In my department, it made me feel like I couldn't talk to anybody about these things. And I was literally leaving work and going to protest and then getting home to go to sleep and then waking up to go back to work a lot of those times. When you're constantly looking at the news and seeing injustice done to Black people where you're being killed in the streets, whether it's police brutality or anything else, how do you still wake up each day and go to the lab or go, be a professor and teach or, you know, to continue your research or your journey and whatever you're doing. How do you continue to do that when you're stricken by so many other things that is harming your mental health and your ability to think about being anything else beyond Black?
0: Now, Dr. Jones has more than a 13-year research background, most of it in the field of neuroscience. And she's an ethics fellow at the American Society for Microbiology. But Dr. Jones hasn't stopped thinking about her original passion of helping students and young professionals as they advance through STEM.
2: But when the George Floyd situation came about, it became more pertinent for me to do this. Because now there are students that are going through the same exact feelings that I was going through, but worse. Because on top of being Black in the US and seeing people that look like your family members, your friends, or whatever else being unjustly killed, you're also trying to get your PhD. There's a pandemic going on. And then the newer things about visas being possibly taken away if you don't do in-person classes or whatever else, all these things are being stacked as burdens that these students are now carrying on top of just trying to be a student. So I said, I need to provide
0: some help. She created a grassroots platform called Stemming While Black. And at first, it was just one virtual program, a Zoom call with panelists.
2: So to be honest, I didn't even know Stemming While Black was going to be as big as it is. I thought I was going to have maybe 20 people.
0: But on the first call, 400 people showed up and Stemming While Black became official.
2: So Stemming While Black is a, it's basically an atmosphere. It's a space to provide guidance to future leaders of STEM from current leaders of STEM. And the current leaders of STEM are all Black stem ears So...
0: Dr. Jones wasn't aware of Dr. Cook's research, but she also had a hunch that something was going on. Her approach was different than Dr. Cook's. Instead of gathering data sets for the places where Black innovators were absent, She just started gathering Black innovators in the present.
2: It is often said that we are not present in STEM careers and academic programs. So now I am going against that, you know, statement by saying, well, look, look, STEM While Black has over 18 panelists that are all Black in STEM. So you can't say that anymore. I have department chairs. I have PIs. I have people at NASA, NIH. There needs to be a sense of normacy that is established within the mindset and in the vision of children as well. We can't keep living the way we lived in the past where it wasn't normal to see diversity in STEM. Well, now I'm giving you more than 18 examples of what you could look like as, you know, little young black or brown, boy or girl. This is what you can strive to be now. So these are the things that I think about when I make these these programs and try to provide this visibility and representation.
0: What started as one Zoom call panel has turned into a mighty movement. Dr. Jones has over 500 registrants for each panel now, and more watch after the fact on YouTube. And Dr. Jones has been building a bigger and more thoughtful table for everyone to pull up a chair to. Now each Zoom call has a mental health corner where participants can ask to talk to a psychologist. She's put together a directory so that everyone can stay connected, they prepare students with professional scripts and tools to combat microaggressions or aggressions the next time they occur. Panelists stay on calls for two to three hours answering questions and acknowledging racism in STEM.
2: How do you deal with the imposter syndrome as you just, just a, STEM, a person in STEM, period? Um, and then how do you deal with imposter syndrome as the only Black in your STEM program? How do you deal with racism and discrimination or... Um, microaggression within these fields, whether you're Black or not. And then one of the biggest questions that I, I received that always resonates with me every day and shows me that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing is how do you continue to STEM as a Black person?
0: Dr. Jones says she's drawing her strength from the others who are now around her, sitting at the virtual table, she said.
2: The people that registered for STEM and Wild Black, my panelists, my hosts, my mental health corner psychologists, who are all Black people who said, hey, we're going to help you and we're going to support this movement. And they're open, they're transparent. They allow you to go get a glimpse into what they actually had to deal with.
0: Dr. Jones has high hopes for the future of STEMing While Black.
2: I want to change the culture for them. It should be no longer any programs that exist that have no diversity or that are only looking for particular students to meet a quota or whatever else. Um, And then if if there is, I don't want these students to be afraid to go into these programs.
0: This cultural change will have a direct economic impact. As Dr. Cook's research proved, helping Black students and professionals in STEM feel safe and welcomed will lead to more innovation, which will lead to more Black Americans exploring intellectual property protections and more patents by Black inventors, inventors like Louis Latimer. Except this time, Dr. Jones wants to make sure everyone knows the story of the next great Black inventor.
2: My biggest thing is making sure that your name is on the things that you've worked hard to do. Um, And then that trickles down to somebody reading about you and saying, oh my gosh, i want to strive to be like that person. So it's so beyond just patenting your work and making sure it's protected, it's also showing people that they could potentially do something like this or better because you've created that foundation in not only doing the work, but also providing a protected way of saying, hey, this work is here, it's done by me.
0: One day, when it's safe, she hopes they can all meet in person somewhere and sit together at a table, maybe even snap a group photo, a photo to solidify their place, a photo to share as an example to all those Black students in STEM so they can see that there are people who look just like them, who've gone on to have successful careers. But until then, the table will have to be virtual and the group photo will have to wait.
2: You didn't didn't appreciate your reflection like (laughs) that? I did not, I did not. I was like, oh no. Okay, so. Since we're all here, well, majority of us are here. Some people said they weren't going to be able to make it. Um, my name is Shakila Huggins. Um, right now, I am working as a high school math teacher, but I am also um, working as a curriculum writer for various online
3: schools. So they have hired me to come in and take their
2: pretty much face-to-face curriculum and put it into an online environment, and that kind of goes hand in hand with my doctorate degree that I'm currently working towards um, in education technology. All right, love and respect to you all. Appreciate you all taking the time to be out here. Um, uh, My professional degree is in medicine. Um, Currently, I have a position as a research coordinator within maternal mental health. So to shine light on that information and make sure that we can help mothers of uh, all races, colors, and creeds to have a balanced mental state. Uh, so yeah, my name is Danielle Chung. Um, I'm currently a translational science liaison for Caris Life Sciences, um, where the company does molecular profiling of patient tumors and then helps design personalized care for the patients. Um, so it's not like a global give everybody the same amount of chemo. Um, you give you recommend the treatments based on the molecular markers that you find. Um, So, hello, I am uh, Dr. Adam Woods. I am a uh, PhD in material science, uh, specifically polymer science and polymer chemistry. Right now I have a job at a chemical supplier company called BASF. Um, I am a uh, application scientist and I work with drug formulations, specifically uh, non-active drug formulations uh, to help things taste better.
3: Um, So my name is Heather Carroll. I am currently a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Maryland in their biology department. Uh, I have a background in neurophysiology, so I received my doctorate from Howard University. Yeah, so my name is Jay Gardner and I am currently a postdoctoral fellow at the Fox Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, There, I work on pancreatic cancer, specifically its tumor microenvironment, so not the cells that cause cancer itself, but the area around it that helps nourish those cancers to continue to grow. And I'm particularly trying to figure out how those cells are communicating with each other so that we can turn it back to where it's unsupportive to the cancer. So that's that's what I do now. I'm also an illustrator. I make science comics um, for um, middle school age and up.
1: So I'm Joseph Waters, uh, material science PhD. I currently
0: work for Intel Corporation and I work at the Arizona powerhouse where we actually manufacture uh, semiconductor chips.
2: So um, I actually work for NACME, which is the National Action Council for Minorities in Engineering. And basically what I do is I work with um, Fortune 500 companies to be able to just explain to them the need to have diversity within corporate America and um, the fact that, you know, many of these students really need help, you know, financially in order to continue, not only to enter, but to continue to um, pursue them getting their degrees in engineering and also computer science. Um, and then on the flip side, working with those students to make sure that they're prepared and everything it is that they need within the, you know, for, with their leadership skills, professional development, and then their technical training. I'm Latipa Jones. Um, I have a computer science bachelor's and a master's in cybersecurity. My background is mostly on um, military intelligence, but currently I am a cyber threat analyst for the department of defense, a civilian. Hi, I'm currently a AAAS Science and Tech Policy Fellow at the National Institutes of Health and I work um, in the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute for the Center for Translation Research and Implementation Science and there I serve as an expert science advisor um, for other scientists and these can be physicians, psychologists, um, even nurses and they work on um, clinical trials where they're implementing um, interventions in different settings, whether they're community and clinical settings, to prevent or treat chronic heart and lung disease. And these are in people that are living currently with HIV. <laughs> okay, so I am Dr. Latasia Jones. My background is in molecular biology as well as biomedical sciences. Most of my training and my training in particular for my PhD and my postdoc was uh, neuroscience and my specialty is anything and everything related to the youth. So.
3: That kind of also ties into why I support STEMMING wild Black, so just being able to expose individuals to, what, to who are scientists, which is everyone. You know, we, we come in all different walks of life and doing this right now helps give a little bit of a reprieve, so instead of constantly seeing the news of another Black individual whose life was needlessly taken, You can show that there are black individuals that are doing amazing things in all different types of science and that this space is also for them. It's our fate isn't only to become a new hashtag down the line where we're so much more than that. So that's, that's a lot of why I support this.
0: like to see the photograph of Lewis Latimer and Edison's team of inventors, visit us on Instagram at IPO Education Foundation. This episode of Stroke of Genius is sponsored by the intellectual property law firm Schwegman, Lumberg, and Wussner. Schwegman actively fosters a firm culture embracing diversity. They believe that diversity can help contribute to collaborative efforts and a positive and supportive workplace and community. To learn more, is at www.slwip.com. Stroke of Genius Season 3 is produced by Goat Rodeo, a D.C.-based production company that empowers storytellers. Keep an ear out for us.